Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 18, Extended Relations. As the victorious Germans were occupying Paris, the American hospital there worried about its position within the new order. Technically, as an American institution, it should have been safe. However, war with its eccentricities coupled with the Nazi penchant for ignoring rules unfavorable to them, left those that staffed the hospital, regardless of their nationality, pensive. However, the hospital's chief surgeon, Dr. Thierry de Mactel, the son of a count and a French citizen, had already decided his response and course of action. On June 14th, the day the Germans entered Paris, Dr. de Mactel woke early that morning, shaved, and dressed, moving to his study on the second floor of his fashionable apartment at 18 Rue Weber. He laid on the couch after injecting himself with a strychnine solution. By his hand was a play about the suicide of a Spanish nobleman. Thus was a giant of the elite French rank gone, unable or unwilling to help resist the German occupiers. De Martel had been with the hospital since 1917 and had become an institution within the institution. He and a colleague had created a technique for brain surgery that had reduced deaths during such operations from 60 to 16 percent. When Ambassador Bullitt and others found out about the doctor's death, many assumed the proud physician was keeping his word after being injured himself and losing his son in the Great War, of never speaking to a German again, that he had ended it all before allowing that to happen. Dr. Mattel's suicide was only one of 14 recorded that day of June 14th. However, it was certainly the most reported on. But time moves on, and this rupture was quickly filled by the American physician, Dr. Sumner Jackson. Not that Dr. Jackson was incapable of handling the workload. After all, he had, along with others of the Harvard group of volunteers, joined the British Army in 1916 in order to participate in war surgery. The casualties from the Second Battle of the Somme gave the young Jackson thousands of opportunities to hone his craft. Before that five-month battle was over, Jackson had learned to treat wounds and damage from bullets, shrapnel, burns, gangrene, trench fever, gas poisoning, and men with parts of their faces or jaws missing. This all done without painkillers or antibiotics, which had yet to be discovered. No, Jackson was more than qualified, but he also had a family with him, and that leaves a man vulnerable. The building that made up the latest version of the American hospital was completed in May 1926 and situated on the Boulevard Victor Hugo, but its charter had been signed into American law in early 1913 by President William Howard Taft. The charter specified that Americans got free treatment, but that foreigners would have to pay. Still, Americans that had the means and needed the hospital's assistance paid as did many rich foreigners in need of its services. And due to the hospital's location, it played a part in French-American culture of the early 20th century. After his first visit, having his appendix removed, 
Ernest Hemingway started writing, The Sun Also Rises, while still in his hospital bed. Later, he would return for minor head surgery when a skylight fell on him from home. Around the same time, other writers or notables, such as Gertrude Stein, the poet E.E. E. Cummings, Zelda Fitzgerald, and James Joyce, only after he was made an honorary American, received free treatment from the American Hospital of Paris. After the scare of the Munich Agreement in 1938, the American Hospital offered its services to the French government. But then came the phony war. The relatively small amount of casualties that flowed into the hospital kept Dr. Jackson and his staff busy, but it was nothing compared to the number of patients from the Great War. It was supposed, or hoped, that maybe this time the war wouldn't be as bad, or maybe it would end now that Germany, or rather Hitler, was satisfied with having settled its grudge against Poland. But peace talks never came. That Christmas of 1939, those wounded soldiers at the hospital were in for a treat as Josephine Baker herself entertained them while in their sick beds. Then the Germans came west. Now, wounded French and Allied soldiers were rushed to the hospital beds, and Jackson and company found themselves closing one field branch after another as the Germans pushed forward. And bringing the wounded to the local field branches was the American Ambulance Corps. For a two-week period before the Germans entered Paris, the American hospital was swamped. There was never enough volunteers to bring coffee, clean wounds, or comfort those waiting for Sumner and his colleagues to operate on them. But then, the waiting rooms were suddenly cleared. The surgeons were able to get off their feet. At first, they were relieved to have a chance to relax and massage their swollen legs. Then, they realized, or were told, that no more casualties would be coming their way, as Paris was surrounded by the Germans. The wounded were now being transported to field hospitals to the south and west. As the last exit route was about to be closed from Paris, Dr. Jackson considered taking his wife, Toquette, their son, and Toquette's sister, Alice, to safer ground. But then Toquette informed her husband that if he left, the French staff that served under him would depart, and thus the entire institution that Jackson had given his life to would exist no more. That Jackson could not do. So Toquette took their son and her sister and headed for Aguilla to the north of Paris. Now that Dr. Jackson had no family to care for, he moved into the hospital's third floor and devoted every waking hour to helping his patients. What else did he have to do? Well, there was one more thing that occupied his mind, but it wasn't time for it just yet. Sumner was determined that the American hospital would not fall into German hands, and that wouldn't be his only future battle. Many Americans who composed the American Ambulance Field Service and Anne Morgan's American Volunteer Ambulance Corps were missing, presumed dead or captured. Many of them had been working for free and paying their own expenses. They deserved whatever their fellow Americans could do for them. Most were, by now, probably what we would call today collateral damage. As most of the volunteers had used donated Chevrolet three-quarter ton trucks with the latest mobile medical facilities on board, it's easy to see why the Germans would covet them and perhaps target these selfless neutrals. Of note, 
when the Americans were helping those civilians trapped behind battle lines in the Meuse Valley. Anne Morgan, aged 67, was there leading her people. With the combined persuasion and pressure applied by Dr. Jackson and Ambassador Bullitt, the American hospital was allowed to continue to treat wounded French soldiers. Of course, the Germans insisted, after Paris was taken over, that this now be done at a dressing station at Fontainebleau. Only those seriously wounded were allowed to be taken to the American hospital. And as things had slowed down at the main hospital, Dr. Jackson and Dr. Groh, its director, traveled to Fontainebleau and worked from there. Again, the numbers were overwhelming and their support and supplies were limited. For the first few weeks after Paris had fallen, Jackson alternated by working, giving blood, and sleeping at the dressing station. Only after the queue had died down somewhat did Jackson visit his family on the weekends. The doctors from the American hospital were allowed to help those French POWs who had been placed in camps around and near Paris. The Americans of this group were somewhat surprised by this, and then not surprised at all by the sparsity of supplies needed to treat the POWs. Turns out that the Germans themselves did not plan on or were ready for the two million French prisoners, along with others they needed to care for. Obviously, the vast amount of German soldiers had no idea of Hitler's attack plan for France and that it would bring such a quick and decisive victory. The Germans were helping themselves by allowing the Americans to help. So, each day, at least during the early phase of the German occupation of Paris and areas to the north, east, and west, long lines of ambulances stuffed with bread and medicine left the hospital, bound for the internment camps. The drivers all were American and French volunteers. It's worth noting that the resistance to Germany's hold had already started, as the ambulance drivers had to be told the location of each nearby prison camp. Soon, a reliable report of the number of camps, their locations, their number of POWs, and their circumstances was drawn up. Before too long, some of the French soldiers who needed more sophisticated care at the hospital never quite found their way back to their camp. Dr. Jackson, his part of this trickery, though not quite clear, made sure no discernible paper trail was left when a French patient disappeared. Although technically a neutral, Ambassador Bullet was stuck between a rock and a hard place. He respected Pétain, as most did, but wanted nothing to do with Vichy. Then a request from FDR saved Bullet. The president was running for an unprecedented third term and wanted Bullet back in the U.S. to speak of his experiences, but mostly wanted Bullet's many and varied powerful connections. Bullet readily agreed. He packed for the U.S. and headed home via Spain, taking with him his secretary, Kamel Offi. Of all the people he would be leaving behind, he could not abandon his Chantilly neighbors, the Gilroys. Dudley Gilroy was a reserve officer in the British Army and risked being arrested, if not worse, if he was ever caught. Bullock came up with the idea of having the husband and wife, Francis, accompany him as his valet and maid. With Bullock's reputation, this should be easy to pull off. 
However, once in Spain, the haughty Frances couldn't hide her true self, and a Spanish official called her out, as she didn't know the first thing about being a servant. In stepped the quick-thinking Carmel. He told the Spanish officer, quote, Don't you understand that the ambassador has a mistress? Unquote. That the Spaniard could understand. The four of them soon departed for America. With Bullet gone, Counselor Robert Murphy was the ranking American official. He had had to endure the arrogant Germans strutting around Paris. Now he had to meet with the new French leaders and sell them on Roosevelt's idea of his pro-British neutral foreign policy. Swallowing what was left of his pride, Murphy met with Pétain and Pierre Laval and explained this newest position of the U.S. Both men looked down on this young and obviously not ambassador representative, of course, for different reasons. Murphy later wrote that the 84-year-old marshal and the younger head minister had very little in common except their view that Germany had won the war and that France had to find a way to learn to live with that fact. Unsurprisingly, Murphy got nowhere with the two leaders. Pétain's only reply to Murphy's overtures about America's plans to support the British in their ongoing struggle with Nazi Germany was to say that he liked America. This was his passive way of saying that his positive attitude towards the U.S. was the only reason he was tolerating Murphy's presence and words. Count René de Chambrat, the son of Jacques Aldebert de Chambrat, a general in the French army, also the husband of Pierre Laval's only daughter, Josie, was made, at Bullet's suggestion, a temporary military attaché by Paul Renault before his fall from power. René's job was to go to the U.S. and convince FDR, his cousin by marriage in fact, to send arms to France and Britain to help them resist Germany. On June 12th, two days before Paris was occupied, René landed in New York. Awaiting him was a message to come see the president the next day. They had a private meeting. Roosevelt was known for doing his best work outside established political circles. The next day, FDR invited René aboard the presidential yacht Potomac, where René got to share his belief of an eventual Allied victory, if supported by the U.S., to the president as well as Avril Harriman, who was advising Roosevelt on foreign affairs, and Harry Hopkins, the Commerce Secretary. As the evening went on, reports continued to come in about the Battle of France. It didn't look good. Roosevelt turned to his cousin, Quote, Rene, the show is over. I really think Britain will be unable to hold out. Unquote. But Rene, who had spent two months in Britain before the phony war ended, countered with, quote, I maintain that Britain, entrenched in her island, is invincible, thanks to her fleet, her fighter force, which is becoming the best in the world, and a good anti-aircraft defense, which must be reinforced immediately. Unquote. FDR, an experienced politician who naturally played his cards close to his chest, agreed more than anyone knew. He was already arranging for 3,100 planes to be sent to Britain by the way of Canada, thus getting around the Neutrality Acts. And as Roosevelt was running for his third term, he had to balance out his promise not to send America's sons to die in Europe 
with helping the Allies as much as possible. So, looking at his sophisticated, cultured cousin René, who was fluent in French and English, who was the first lawyer to be admitted to the bar in the U.S. and France, decided here was the only person who could help the president spread the word that the U.S. needed to take a more active role in helping Britain and France. The only way to do that was to increase America's war production and perhaps loan some of it to the Allies. René was given a list of Americans to visit and to persuade. Some of these included Secretary of State Cordell Hull, House Speaker Sam Rayburn, New York Daily publisher Joe Patterson, Treasury Secretary Hans Morgenthau, the President's own wife, Eleanor, René's own aunt, Alice, the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, who had the ear of many powerful Republican congressmen, and Senate Republican Robert Taft. It didn't hurt when René was introduced to everyone as Lafayette's descendant. And FDR's plan worked, though how much credit René should receive is unclear. Roosevelt was not stopped when he released war material ordered by France and Britain at the beginning of the war, as it had been embargoed since then. But if it's any indication, Lord Lothian, Britain's ambassador to the U.S., wrote to René, quote, You have been able almost alone, to change official public opinion in favor of my country. For all of this, I want to assure you that Great Britain will never forget anything that you have done for her during her days of misfortune and distress. Rene also asked his cousin, the President of the United States, to send food to southern France. FDR casually agreed, as long as Bullet said yes and that the United States could get assurances that Nazi Germany would not appropriate the shipments. But one thing at a time. First, René met with Ambassador Bullitt when he arrived from Spain on July 20th. Bullitt was all for it and said so to the president. Still, Roosevelt hesitated. René tried to read the president's mind by saying that the Germans would stay out of Vichy territory, and besides, they were all focused and concentrated on the north hoping to invade Britain soon. So FDR, the wily politician, agreed, but had two more conditions. First, Marshal Pétain had to stop his government's anti-British propaganda to reduce the tension between the two former allies. And second, the new French leader had to tell the American reporters in Vichy that France supported America's democratic ideas and its increased military expenditures to defend those ideas. René flew to Vichy and put the deal to Pétain, who quickly agreed. The marshal made his speech of supporting America. Then René jumped aboard his clipper and headed back for New York. But everything was about to unravel. René arrived in New York on August 31st, carrying a letter from Pétain to Roosevelt. But waiting for René on the phone was the president's private secretary, Missy Lahan. She told René Chambrat not to come to Washington. Instead, Hopkins would be coming to him. When Hopkins got there, he got right to the point. Quote, the president has had to give up on the plan of shipping condensed milk. Churchill telephoned him, insisting that we maintain the blockade of France. Unquote. To twist a well-known saying, the friend of my enemy is no longer my friend. 
I'd like to end this episode on an ugly scene. As the Marshal of France, Pétain, was about to rescue France from the war. At 1.30 a.m. on the morning of June 17th, the Germans were bombing Bordeaux. The city had become the new haven, as the French government and many of the citizens of Paris had fled there. Also in Bordeaux was the temporary home of Radio France's headquarters. Philippe Pétain, wearing his gold-braided uniform of a marshal, came into the studio at dawn. Around 10 a.m. that morning, he would address his people as their new leader. As he waited for his time to speak, his already taunt features grew even more tense. Surely no one dreams of becoming the leader of a country at a time like this. However, Pétain kept his composure. That is, until right before he spoke into the microphone. As his hour approached, a young boy was setting up the microphone. He was assisting the broadcaster, Drew Leighton Tartier, a beautiful American actress who had grown bored of playing the eye-catching blonde in Charlie Chan mystery movies. And after marrying the son of Dr. Thierry de Martel, the man who killed himself when the Germans entered Paris, devoted her energies to bringing America and France together through radio programs back in the States. In fact, Nazi radio announced, after learning of her broadcasts, that when France fell, and if she was caught, would be executed. Pétain watched the boy adjusting the microphone to be level with his mouth. All the while, Drew was watching the marshal, his tension growing. The boy, taking too long to suit the 84-year-old marshal, received a well-aimed kick at the boy's backside until he moved away from the old man. Moments later, the marshal began his address to France. Quote, I say that by the affection of our admirable army and by the confidence of all our people, I give to France my person to assuage her misfortune. It is with a broken heart that I tell you today, it is necessary to stop fighting. I addressed myself last night to the adversary to ask him if he is ready to seek with me soldier to soldier after the actual fighting is over and with honor the means of putting an end to hostilities. Unquote. When Pétain and his supporters took control of France, German forces only held about 10% of the country, and France still had the resources of its empire and its mighty fleet. Yet, after the armistice was signed, France was fragmented into four parts. France's northern coast, centered on Calais, was to be governed from Belgium, and it was forbidden to French citizens. Alsace and Lorraine, ripped from France after the Franco-Prussian War, became provinces of the German Reich. Citizens of French origin were forced to leave. A large section of the country centered around Paris and areas to the west became officially occupied territory. That left the area to the south of Paris to be administered by Vichy. The German troops and any large numbers there were ordered by Berlin to head back to occupied territory. 